You can be seated wherever you are. Thank you, Jonas and Kim, for leading us in those hymns this morning. It was beautiful. And they um, rightly reflect God's word, which we're about to hear from Psalm 106. And so if you would, you probably have a digital bulletin. Um, If you don't have that, you can turn in your Bible to Psalm 106. It is a long psalm. It is 48 verses long, and it's my intention to read the entire thing, and then we're going to just go back over it in a flyover and understand exactly what it is that the psalmist is intending for us from what I can understand and what the Lord led me to this week. Let's read Psalm 106. It is entitled, Give Thanks to the Lord, for He is Good. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice and do righteousness at all times. Verse 4, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left alive. And they believed, then they believed his words and they sang his praise. Verse 13. But soon they forgot his works and they did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When the men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed at Dathan and covered the company at Abraham. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They came and made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Verse 24, Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples, as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations, and they learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. 
They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjugation under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Verse 47, save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his holy scriptures this morning. So a flyover of Psalm 106. Psalm 106 begins and ends with the identical phrase, praise the Lord. That's where the psalmist wants us to begin and to end. What is here in this psalm with all of its sin and sorrow and pain is a reason to praise the Lord, to praise God. And that means not just to say great things about God, but believe and feel that he is praiseworthy that he is great, that he is glorious, that he is wonderful and worthy of praise. The very word worship is rooted in an old English term that would have transliterated itself into our modern day vernacular as worth-ship, ascribing worth to something, ascribing worth to what is worthy of that worth, what is valuable. God himself is more valuable than anything else, more to be desired than anything else. That is what it means to praise God, to think and feel and say and sing those kinds of things about him. And that's the goal of Psalm 106 is to cause people to ascribe worth to God. Under this praise is a thankful heart at the beginning, verse 1, and at the end, verse 47. Oh God, oh, we give thanks to the Lord and that we may give thanks to your holy name. So thankfulness exists right under the surface of the praise. The reason given for why this praise and this thanks are so fitting is because he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So the psalmist wants us to see God as praiseworthy, as good, as loving, both in his judgments and also in his salvation of his people. And we'll come back to that praiseworthiness of God and the header and the footer of this psalm, Psalm 106. But in the middle, we see a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. And let's look at that. Let's look at now what the body of this psalm contains. It's a long list of Israel's rebellion and failures. So verse 7, they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. That's from Exodus chapter 14. Verse 14, they had a wanton craving, a craving, an insatiable craving in the wilderness. This drove them to grumbling against the Lord. That's Exodus 17. Verse 16, they were jealous of Moses and Aaron. That's Numbers 16. 
Verse 19, they made a calf at Horeb and worshiped a metal image. That's Exodus chapter 32. Verse 24, they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in the promise. That's Numbers chapter 14. Verse 28, they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. That's Numbers 25. Verse 32, they angered God at the waters of Meribah and made Moses' spirit bitter. That's Numbers chapter 20. Verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples, but mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. That's Judges uh, chapters 1 through 3. Verse 36, they served there, meaning the Canaanite idols. That's Exodus 23, 33, Deuteronomy 7, chapter 16, and Judges 2, verse 3. And then finally, verse 37, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. That is 2 Kings 16, verse 3. Isaiah 57, verse 5, Ezekiel 16, verse 20, and Ezekiel 10, verse 20, excuse me, Ezekiel 20, verse 26. And so as you can see, the header and the footer of this psalm don't seem to really fit with the body of text. It flows like this. God is good, and you see this pattern over and over again in the history of Israel. God is good. Israel is really, really bad. Save us, God. God is really good. That's the the chunk of, that's big chunks of Psalm 106. God is good. Israel is really, really bad. Save us, O Lord. God is really, really good. What the psalmist is doing is showing the brightness and purity and light by showing and illustrating the darkness and evil of the dark. You can't fully appreciate the goodness of God without first fully appreciating the darkness and the evil of the people that he had mercy on and saved. To make understood the relationship between the two, good and the evil, the light and the dark, is the goal of the entire canon of 66 books of what we call the Holy Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, which is 39 of the 66 books. Over and over and over and over again, in the Old Testament particularly, from Genesis to Malachi, we see the pattern of God giving holy standards to his people, his people rebelling against him, things going poorly, them repenting, God delivering them, and passing over their sins. The people of Israel ran after other gods, and there are children listening, no doubt, so I won't pile on verbs, but Israel was an unfaithful wife. And worse, really, she sold herself to the Lord's enemies. Whether they were literally statues and man-made images and gods of the pagan nations around them or the idols of their own hearts, they were prone to wander and embrace the created rather than the creator. And so what I want to do now is I want to examine, with the time that we have left, I want to examine the death caused by Israel's sin. We know that the wages of sin is death. We know that in the end, sin leads to death. There's lots of scripture, and we'll get into some of those here in a little bit, that helps us understand that the end, the concluding act of sin and result of sin is death. And so what I want to do is I want to examine post-mortem, so to speak, the sin of Israel, the death of Israel, as it progresses downward as it plunges itself deeper and deeper and deeper into sin, ultimately leading to death. There are four stages I see in Psalm 106. Number one, forgetting God's worth. 
Number two, justifying their compromise. Number three, keeping bad company. And number four, there being no price too high to pay. No price too high to pay. And so let's go number one, forgetting God's worth. Look back to Psalm 106, verse seven. It says, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. God had just brought his people out of Egypt by his powerful hand. They had just witnessed, they had just seen all the plagues played out right in front of their faces. Wash over the Egyptians, wave after wave after wave of power from God, wave after wave after wave, putting to death their false Egyptian gods and their false assumptions about who was actually in charge until Pharaoh let them go. And now they stood beside the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit with no confidence in the Lord. They said this, were there not enough graves in Egypt, it would have been better if we had just stayed slaves. That's not fear. That's contempt. And then verse 13 refers to the people at Meribah from Exodus 17 where they were thirsty. And again, they have a very what have you done for us lately attitude toward Moses and the Lord as if God who delivered them from Egypt can't deliver them from a dry mouth. And again, they say to Moses and to the Lord, our slavery was better than this. Sin doesn't start fully grown. It starts small and subtle. A new and happy husband doesn't wake up beside his bride the morning after their wedding night and say to himself, I think I'll have an affair today. Satan and his legions of demons are highly skilled in the craft of getting us to make little compromises along the way to a big life-altering blunder. I'm reminded of the book by Russell Moore called Tempted and Tried, where he compares this to the process of a slaughterhouse where cows are lulled off a truck and comforted in near silence, massaged along their sides to mimic the, the, the sensation of the herd around them, coaxed forward, not by force, but by under the power of the cow itself toward its final destination. The problem that sins create do not start out there. They start right here. Just as the Israelites, just as with the Israelites, it starts with a subtle dethroning of God in your heart and sitting something else in his place. Romans chapter one reveals that the essence of sin is substitution. All of us by nature want to substitute ourselves our idols, our appetites for God. We want to decide for ourselves what we will do and what we won't do. We want to do what God prohibits and not do what God commands apart from his grace. None of us want to obey God's law. And that is the essence of sin. It's an act of substitution. 
our authority for his authority. And this substitution is a deep and indelible characteristic of the human race. It affects every one of us and every part of every one of us. We can't quarantine it or avoid it. We cannot get away from contamination because it's already inside of us. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, there's nothing outside a person that's going to defile him, but rather it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. Sin has already taken up residence in me, and it's taken up residence in you, and it has made itself very much at home. But maybe that sounds, that might make it sound like we're innocent victims of some awful virus or cancer, and that's just simply not the case. Each one of us, by default, freely chooses to substitute the authority of our God for our own authority, and we just prefer it that way. Just like it that way. So what we have in Psalm 106 is a front row seat to the slaughterhouse drive of God's people in the Old Testament. It's like watching a train wreck in slow motion. The psalmist is yelling and waving his hands to the people of God as they're in exile. No, stop, fight, turn back, cling to the Lord. We've seen how this turns out from our fathers and generations gone before us. Ascribe the God the glory to his name. Accept no substitutes. Don't make the exchange. God is the only one worthy of worship. But as James 1 Verses 14 and 15 say, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desires, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Brings forth death. And despite all the warnings from the Lord, the prophets, the leaders, down the spiral we go. So the second thing we see in this psalm, justifying compromise. Verse 19, they made a calf at Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. The ox We all know the story of the ox. And the psalmist in 106 sarcastically calls it a calf. He's he's making fun of what they did. The ox was an Egyptian symbol of provision. It was their tractor. It was their, their meat. It was their milk. It was their cheese. And God had promised his people provision. Remember what he had promised them? A land flowing with milk and honey. But Moses went up to the mountain and was taking too long. They were in the wilderness. The blessings of God weren't coming immediately, so they were ready to turn back to their old ways. God had told them just a few chapters back in Exodus chapter 20 as they consecrated themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai, worship no other gods. Ascribe worth to no other god. And don't make any images to try to represent me or anything else. You can't represent my worth with an image. You can't make a statue of me. I can't be contained within an image. And he told them his name, remember? I am that I am. But they were anxious. They wondered if this manna was going to keep flowing. They wondered if these nomad tribes that surrounded them on all sides were going to overtake them. They wondered if Moses was going to come back down that mountain at all. 
So in an effort to take control of their situation, they resorted to the only thing they could give them that could give them the feeling of security and control outside the Lord. They worshiped provision rather than the God that was going to provide for them. And you and I are prone to do the exact same thing. When the Lord has said, thou shalt not, it means thou shalt not. No matter how well you think you have a handle on it, you don't. No matter how voracious your appetite is, no matter how much better you feel when you compromise, when the sovereign king of all the universe says do not and you do, the only justification that can happen apart from the Lord is in a pit of hell. And it's appropriate now to pause and and ask ourselves the question, what am I doing? What am I saying? How am I acting that I'm working to justify? And I don't want to cheapen it. Some of you, it's blatant. You're in blatant rebellion, book, chapter, verse. Some of you, it's very subtle. It's an attitude. It's a thought that you continue to entertain. It's a lust. It's on the precipice of becoming action or it's already become a little action. The devil made me do it is always a lie. It's just not true. The forces of evil are far too skilled for that. They are perfectly adept and you are perfectly prone to wander a little compromise here, a little justification there, a little cover-up, some deception, some half-truths. No one is perfect. God understood what he was getting into when he decided to do business with me. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, right down the slaughterhouse drive. You might say, but Pastor Kurt, I thought you were a student and a follower of the doctrines of Reformation. I thought you believed in election and that the saints will persevere to the end, and I do, very much so. But if you knowingly justify your compromises with sin by flippantly saying, God forgives, grace, grace, God's grace, heed my warning now before it's too late. Jesus will say to you, Depart from me. I never knew you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. And hear me. Quit. Hear the words of the psalm, what the psalmist was doing. He's waving his arms. Quit playing games. Quit playing games with your sin. Fight your sin. Fight it now. Fight it in the subtlety of your heart. Fight it in its infant stages while it still hasn't given way to full vent. And if you have moved into this phase, grab the sin by its roots and ruthlessly pull it out. Put to death the works of the flesh. Jesus gave us the tools to recognize the subtleties of our sin. Sermon on the Mount, when you read Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus takes all the thou shalt nots and ups the annies. He says, you have heard it said, 
Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that uh, anyone who looks at a woman who's not his wife with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's what he's talking about. Sin doesn't start at the end. It starts many, many steps before the end. Many, many steps before it becomes a visible, full vent sin. It's already stewing. It's already brewing. Don't justify it. Don't go with it. Don't say God will take care of it. Fight it. Fight it in the subtlety of your own heart. And furthermore, care enough about your brothers and sisters to, in the faith to help them fight sin in their own lives. Lest we do not learn from the example of the Israelites and the author of 106, Psalm 106. The Israelites did not learn. And so further down we go. Verse 34, third step, third level, finding affirmation from sinful company. Verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples, but mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. That's Judges 1 through 3. And then verse 36, Psalm 106, verse 36, they served their Idols, meaning the Canaanites, and they, those idols became a snare to them. Think about that in terms of Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but what? Give approval to those who practice them. Any port in a storm, Right? Now we see any, we start to see any glowing ember of the truth that exists within the heart of God's people being smothered out. Any means they can use to suppress the truth. Looking for people that will say what their sinful hearts want to hear. Tickle their ears. Pour honey. I'm reminded of the story of Robin Hood where the true and valiant King Richard is off to war, Richard the Lionheart, and in his place sets a pathetic excuse for a man, a sad excuse for a ruler, the tyrant Prince John. And in his royal court, his royal court of Prince John are yes-men and extortioners like the Sheriff of Nottingham that praise him and tell him he is the rightful king, even though it is a lie. Anyone who dares speak the truth, long live King Richard, is put out of sight and oftentimes executed because the truth threatens the lie. If you, like Israel, have partnered with truth suppressors, May my words this morning and the words of the psalmist from 106 pierce through the isolation of lies. You are not the king. Long live King Jesus. What he has called wrong is wrong. What he has called good is good. And no amount of lies backed up by the lies of other liars can make the lies 
true. And then finally, we get to the lowest and saddest point. No price too high to pay. The psalmist ends the list in verse 37 with this. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. He could have spilled more ink. He could have wrote more. The, the list of, of sins for Israel was just frightfully long. It was, it was, he could have kept going. This could be the longest psalm in the Bible. It could be longer than Psalm 119, just listing out the sins of Israel. But he doesn't keep going. Rebellion, craving, jealousy, idolatry, despising God's good gift, unbelief, necromancing, murmuring, assimilation among the nations, serving the gods of Canaan, and sacrificing their own children. Why did he stop there? Perhaps because how do you get any worse than that? How do you get any more dehumanizing than that? How do, you, how do you go any farther down of the dethroning of God? They sacrificed, verse 37 through 39, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and they played the whore in their deeds. To rebel against the God of life is to love and crave what ultimately leads to death. When we sin, we devalue what is valuable, and we try to add value to what is much less valuable. God values life, especially the lives of his crowned jewel of creation, which is man. They poured out the blood of their children. They cut their arteries and let their blood flow down an altar. How did they get there? In a matter of a few generations, they went from doubting the sovereignty and power of God to save them as Pharaoh's army pressed them against the Red Sea to completely given over to the lusts of their flesh and spilling the blood of the innocent babies born out of that lust. How did they get there? In the Garden of Eden, the serpent lurked and whispered, God won't save you. Take care of yourself. Beside the Red Sea, as Pharaoh's armies came hurtling toward them, the serpent lurked and whispered, God won't save you. Take care of yourself. As the Israelites neglected to purge the land of the wicked Canaanites, the serpent lurked and whispered, you know what's best for yourself. Everything that has been gained thus far has been gained by your hand. God won't save you. Take care of yourself. And as a woman drives up to Planned Parenthood, an unplanned child growing inside her womb 
The serpent lurks and whispers, God won't save you. Take care of yourself. Much ink has been spilled using the end of this passage to preach against abortion. I don't believe that is the actual intent was what the author had in mind in Psalm 106, although the application is certainly apt. Where children are devalued and murdered by the very people who God ordained to nurture and protect them, sin has fully flowered. The death spiral is at the bottom. And it is awful. Unspeakably awful. I learned this morning that on Friday afternoon, which if something is released from governing authorities or those with things to say on a Friday afternoon, it's because they don't want people to pay attention. They're burying it. On Friday afternoon, Governor Bashir in Kentucky vetoed a bill. It was called the Born Alive Act. It's a very simple law. It just simply said that abortion clinics in the state of Kentucky, if a child is born alive in the course of an abortion, they must stop trying to abort it and start trying to save it. It passed both houses of Kentucky's legislator with bipartisan support and was put on his desk. And on Friday afternoon, he vetoed it. As Christians, we should have a very clear view based upon texts like Psalm 106 that murder is the ultimate expression of devaluing what God values. We must be the people pleading for the lives of the unborn outside of clinics. We must be the people writing our lawmakers to cease the murder of children. We must be the people running for law, office, lawmaking offices. We must be the people fighting back against murder, especially the murder of innocent in every single way imaginable. But, but, lest we forget the lesson that Psalm 106 is teaching us, the Israelites didn't get to baby murdering out of nowhere. It started as a substitution of the worship of God for the worship of themselves and their own provision, their own idols. They believed the lie. God won't save you. Take care of yourself. And that is the root of the problem. That is where the church must strike the hardest. It is our mission with the help of the Holy Spirit to keep the worship of God primary, the right worship being ascribed to the name of God is our mission. It has to stay primary in the hearts of men and women. 
No external force acting upon men and women will keep them from sinning and sinning all the way unto death. We have to start in the subtle, dark corners of their cold, dead hearts. And God must sit down on his throne. We must proclaim, we must proclaim as Satan whispers into their ears, God can't save you, take care of yourself. We must ring out, God will save you. You can't take care of yourself. The psalmist knew this. Look at, look at verses 43 through 46. Look, who's he crying out to? Who's he going back to? 43, many times from all these wretched sins, many times he had delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Verse 44, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And he caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. The Lord had over and over and over again with the people of Israel already disproved the lie. He was already powerful to save. And the psalmist is now coming back again because he refuses to believe the lie. Israel is in captivity when Psalm 106 is written. Again, they need saved. He has written a psalm to remind the people who is the Lord over them? Who has the power to save them? Who will give them salvation and liberate them from their death? Only the Lord. Only their husband. The Lord. And then verse 47. He cries out to God. He thanks God because he has been their deliverer. And then verse 47, he pivots and he looks forward and he makes a request and he says to the Lord, Save us, O Lord our God. We have been a wretched people. You have saved us in the past. Now save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And the Lord would answer this prayer more fully than the psalmist could ever imagine. This baby murdering ethic of the Israelite people carried forward and kept going. But it could not stop Israel's salvation when Herod himself killed all the baby boys of Bethlehem in an effort to keep the true king off of his throne. The serpent himself tried his hardest to hiss his tired old lies into the ears of Israel's salvation in Matthew chapter 4 when he was in the wilderness. The most murderous, hedonistic, sinful empire in human history partnered with the corrupt and compromised leaders of Israel, thought they thought they had silenced the truth by hanging him on a tree. But everywhere they got it wrong, he got it right. For every time they forgot the father's worth, he restored the honor due his name. Every time they compromised and broke covenant, he justified and mediated on their behalf. Every time they partnered with workers of lawlessness, he upheld and fulfilled the law. And for every debt too deep to pay, Jesus paid it all. Long live King Jesus. The true and better Israel. 
Praise the Lord. Long live King Jesus, the true and better Israel. God can save and he has saved and he will save. Sin is a substitution. Just as sin is a substitution, salvation is substitution too. God the Son enters the world as our substitute. Jesus lived a sinless life and he did it on our behalf. He also died a sinner's death and he did that on our behalf too. He lived like that so that we could be credited with the sinless life that we find it impossible to live. And he died like that so that we would never have to face the condemnation that our sin deserves. Sin is when man substitutes himself for God. Salvation is when God substitutes himself for man. The blood on the cross allowed the Father to pass over the sins of Israel, no matter how heinous. You've seen it in Psalm 106. It got really bad. And the blood on the cross has allowed the Father to pass over your sins, no matter how heinous. And I plead with you this morning, just as the author of Psalm 106 pleaded with the Israelites, You have strayed from the Lord and your sin is really, really bad. But he is faithful and he has made a way. Silence the hiss. It's a lie. God can save and he has saved. He is worthy of your worship today because he can save and he has saved and he has made a way on your behalf. He has claimed victory not only to over his own death on a cross through the resurrection on the third day after he was killed. He claimed victory over death. It was the death of death. Not only his own death, but yours. Not only his own death, but the death of baby murderers. He has made a way where there was no way. He is worthy of our praise. Praise the Lord. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, Let us never lose sight. Let us never lose sight that you are worthy. No doubt many of us, Lord, we needed this wake-up call from Psalm 106 to to wake us from our drunken stupor, to, to pierce through the insulation of lies that we create around ourselves in order to keep ourselves on the throne of our hearts. But this morning, Lord, we get off the throne. And we give it back to you. And we lift you up and we say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He is good and he is worthy of our worship. And we ask, Lord, we are so prone to wander away from this moment. And we ask that you bind our hearts to yours. That you keep us close to you, always seeing how valuable you are, how worthy you are. 
You have done it. You have done it. And Lord, we are so dependent upon you for salvation. Save us, O Lord. Save us, O Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would now stand and let's sing together the hymn, His Mercy is More.